everybody. Welcome back to Conservation Chronicles. This is Mariana here with my co-host Jonah. How are things going for you, Jonah? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> that was supposed to be like Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> That's um, a good answer. <laughs> I'm good. How about you? <laughs> good, good. Yep, good, great. Mm-hmm, nothing new, as usual. <laughs> cool. Well, let's just get started because we got a lot to talk about today. Um, oh, yeah. We always talk about today, but really, like, people yeah. could be listening to this, like, five years in the future. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, anyways. Um, so we have a lot to talk about today, but I just really want to quickly just talk about this one piece of news um, that I recently saw. Actually, I'm looking at it now, and this is from April. <laughs> But it's still really cool to talk about. Um, So I guess it's not news. But um, I apparently back in April or before April 2019 for future listeners. um, uh, The species of a frog called the pumpkin toadlet in Brazil was discovered um, to have glowing bones. So... Basically, first of all, it's tiny. It's like the size of a a coin, like a small coin, like an American nickel. Um, and they're actually deaf to their own species mating calls, which is weird. Huh. Um, but so they're, you know, scientists are kind of trying to figure out, like, why are they deaf to their own mating calls? That's actually stupid. But <laughs> in doing and trying to figure this out, they discovered that they... Um, glow under ultraviolet light and which is really cool and so they think that that might help mates find each other in the dark if they can detect that glowing Um, but surprisingly the source of the glowing is a fluorescent skeleton that shines through you know their really thin skin so you know that's currently the hypothesis that well, let alone how amazing the fluorescent skeleton is, just ecologically they're thinking that this fluorescence is helping them to, um, you know, find mates and also maybe to serve as a warning to, to would-be predators. Um, so that's pretty cool. We'll have a link to that article in the show notes, and it has a picture of this. It, <laughs> this toilet is so small, <laughs> it looks like it's, like, shriveled up and dead. <laughs> But it has pictures of it glowing, so it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, sticking with our herp theme, um, this is going to be an endangered species episode where we are talking about a species of crocodilian called the gharial. Um, and its scientific name is Gavialis gangeticus. And, well, first of all, Unless you're driving, you should stop and you should just look up a picture of a gharial. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not a normal looking crocodile. No. Um, it's it's very unique and it's actually critically endangered, which is why we're going to be talking about it. Um, and a couple things that make it unique is that it's a habitat and diet specialist, like very specialist, which we'll talk about. 
and it's critically endangered because there have been pretty dramatic population declines and range fragmentation like in less than the past hundred years. Um, so we'll be touching on all that. But um, like I said, it's it's a pretty distinct crocodilian. It's actually one of the largest in the world. So it can range from four to six and a half meters, which is 13 to 12 or 13 to 21 feet long. Um, it can weigh 160 to 180 kilograms, which is 250 to 400 pounds. And then the males are going to be on the, the larger end of that spectrum because they're larger than females. Um, and if you looked up a picture of them, you'll notice that the most striking thing about them when you first look at them is they have a really long, slender snout that is unlike other crocodilians. And this is something that, this is one reason why they are diet specialists because it helps them particularly in in hunting fish, which we'll talk about. And this is this is really weird, but I mean, not weird. It's interesting that the snout, that that long slender snout changes shape with age. So as an individual gets older, the snout gets longer and thinner. And so as they become adults, their diet becomes more specialized for fish. And you'll also notice that in some pictures that you see, they have this bulbous growth on the end of the snout. And this is only found in males, and it's called a gara, if that's how you say it, which is where obviously the name Gariel comes from. And this is Hindu for pot. And the best I could figure out why it's called a pot is because it... Actually, I don't know why it's called <laughs> a pot. It probably has something to do with um, these noises that it can make. Uh. So during courtship, males use it to produce bubbles mm -hmm. and, and make a loud buzzing sound, which you know, we'll talk about here in a second. Um, and one other thing that sort of makes them unique among crocodilians is that they have really weak limbs where they can't even like support themselves to walk like other crocodilians. And so consequently, they're one of the most aquatic species of crocodilians because they don't really have much of an ability to walk on land. Yeah, so as Jonah was saying, they are habitat specialists. And to talk a little bit about their distribution, historically, largely before 1943, they were found in several countries, including Bhutan, Bangladesh, India, Myanmar, Nepal, and Pakistan in their major rivers and tributaries. They were also possibly found in other drainages in the region, but there's limited data available to confirm. And that's one of the, one of the issues with this particular species is there's been limited data throughout history, even, even currently. They were extirpated, which means locally, um, which is a local extinction. Uh, we've used that word before, but just in case. They were extirpated from Bhutan, Myanmar, Pakistan, and most of Bangladesh. And we'll talk more about the, um, the sort of uncertainty about their populations in Bangladesh a little bit later. Currently, they're only found in 14 disjunct subpopulations. And by disjunct, we mean they're disconnected. They, they don't connect to each other. In northern India and the lowlands of Nepal. And this represents just 2% of their historic range, which is <laughs> insane, um, if you think about it, just 2%. And because they're such habitat specialists, that's that's really bad news. But 
They So speaking of their habitat, they prefer confluences of fast-flowing rivers, highly seasonal rivers, as well as deep pools. But they are also found in still waters and sheltered backwaters. And they bask on fine sandy banks and some rocky outcrops. And those fine sandy banks are really important for them, obviously, for basking. And they have to be near the water, clearly, because as Jonah was saying, they are not very mobile on land. They do have high site fidelity, which we also call philopatry. That's where you stay in the same area, or at least you routinely return to the same area throughout your life. Um, So that can be an issue as well when it comes to habitat degradation. And of course, they prefer rivers with low to no human disturbance. So some subpopulations are found in reservoirs caused by dam constructions, uh, dam construction, and we will also talk about um, the high prevalence of dams and barrages in that entire area, as well as in natural lakes in the Brahmaputra drainage in Bangladesh. And That's mostly through introduction or through reintroduction, which we'll cover later, but it's a really important drainage system in the entire area. So like I already said, um, gharials diet changes with age. So when they're juveniles, they eat fish, small fish, insects, frogs, small mammals. And then as I said, as they grow and their snout becomes thinner, they predominantly eat just fish. Um, because that's sort of what that snout allows them to specialize in. And so most of the feeding occurs during the warm monsoon season, which is from June through September, um, when rivers overflow their banks. And so this is going to be the time when they're, they're really focused on feeding and when they're more active. And they have three hunting or, or feeding strategies so the first one is that they sit and wait underwater until like prey passes by and they catch them um, or they search, you know, through the water using sensory organs on the scales that sense vibrations in the water. And so this is common in a lot of animals across, you know, a variety of different taxa that live in not only just in water, but especially like um murky water or they they aren't using vision to locate prey and so they can sense movement and then that allows them to detect prey um and then finally their last hunting strategy is a rapid strike so they you know one of the benefits of that thin jaw is that it creates low water resistance when they're striking underwater and so obviously because fish are so fast that water resistance isn't an issue because they have a thin jaw and they can snap that shut real quick before a fish escapes. Like most crocodilians, they can live for a long time. Although I would say this is probably on the lower. I mean, I don't know everything about all crocodilians, but I would suspect that this is on the lower spectrum of a lifespan for the gharials. They can live for 40 to 60 years, mm-hmm. um, which I would think it'd be a lot longer. I would think so too. Yeah. Um, and so males, so this is, this is sort of a common theme with a lot of endangered species and maybe even a few of the ones we've talked about before. Um, I forget, but anyways, they, they have a slow life history because they're relatively long lived and that's, you know, generally common with species that 
live a long time. And so by slow life history, we mean that they're slow to reproduce, you know, meaning they're slow to reach sexual maturity. They, you know, might not breed every year. They aren't breeding multiple times per year. So it takes a while for the population to grow because of certain, you know, ecological characteristics like this. And so males don't actually become sexually mature until like 13 to 16 years old. And when they're about like three meters or or 10 feet long. And then females are mature, you know, a few years earlier. But still, this is, you know, if you're only living to 40 years, that's a pretty late sexual maturity. Yep. Um, And that delay is an issue for recovery of populations. So the breeding season... And this is this is sort of one reason, uh, another limiting factor uh, that the breeding season for gharials is highly seasonal and and very short, and so you know there's no way for them to have multiple to breed multiple times per year like you know other species with faster life histories. Yeah. So the breeding season only lasts two months during the dry season, which depending on the seasonal conditions and you know what subpopulation and region we're talking about the dry season can be anywhere between november and february but again that that breeding season is only going to be occurring for about two months and so reproductive this is really interesting too about gharials i mean everything about them is interesting Mm. but reproductive adults are actually really migratory which you don't think about crocodilians migrating And so they move anywhere from 50 to 200 kilometers between breeding and non-breeding areas. And in the breeding areas, which are primarily slow-moving stretches of river with sandy banks, because the sandy banks are used for nesting, in these breeding areas, adults congregate in groups where they, they breed and bask together. And so, as I already alluded to, during courtship, the, the gara, that Um, growth on the end of a male snout is used for displaying like you know male to male competition and then also used in attracting females that you know blowing bubbles and making that buzzing noise also helps attract females and so in several of the um, Indian subpopulations over 90% of the females breed every year but then when you get into the northerly subpopulations like in Nepal They only breed every other year, which, again, makes recovery really difficult because this their reproductive cycle is so slow. So after females have mated, they drag themselves up onto the sandy banks and they dig nests that are like 50 to 60 centimeters or, or 20 to 23 inches deep. And depending on the size of the female, they can lay anywhere from 20 to 100 eggs. So the larger they are, the more eggs they're going to lay. But sort of an average is like 40 eggs in a nest. And the period of incubation is two to two and a half months. And during this period, females actually guard the nest every night. So they'll be in the water during the day. And then they go up and lay on the nest. And it's not like incubation like a bird, you know, giving their body heat. Um, they're being incubated in the sand, the heat from the sand the substrate, but the female is there guarding every night to defend against potential predators like, you know, mesocarnivores that would dig up the nest, but they're, and, but they're not necessarily like defending it from other females. Cause obviously multiple females could be nesting on a beach 
so they're not like territorial towards them. And like other reptiles, in case you've, you've never heard this, um, gharials exhibit temperature-dependent sex determination. So this means that the temperature of the nest determines the sex of the animals that hatch. So nests that are 29 to 31 and a half degrees Celsius produce only females. Nests that are like 32 degrees produce mostly males, although there could be some females. And then 33 degrees and above produces mostly females. So it's like males, you know, if there's going to be mostly males, it has to be that ideal temperature of 32 degrees. And this is common and, you know, you often hear about it like in sea turtles, but most reptiles um, exhibit this, most um, egg-laying reptiles. So then the eggs hatch in May to July, um, just before the onset of the monsoon season. And so when hatching occurs, you know, juveniles are buried in the sand, they're coming out of the eggs, and they start chirping. And then the, the mother, you know, comes and digs them up and to release them from the sand. Um, but unlike other crocodilians, the, the female doesn't transport them to the water. And that's probably just because of their weird snout, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and hatchlings are, when they hatch, they're about 18 centimeters or seven inches long. And hatchlings from different nests, when they reach the water, they gather into these creches, these, these groups of hatchlings. They can be anywhere from like hundreds of hatchlings to even thousands. Mm. And usually a few of the mothers and often a large male will hang out with these creches to guard them because obviously when they're that small, they're, uh, you know, lots of predators that could, could take them. And so they, they stay in these creches for like one to two months. And then the monsoon rains, monsoonal rains begin and the rivers begin to flood. And then at this point, the adults migrate back to their non-breeding areas for the winter. And then the juveniles become dispersed as flooding occurs and they, um, they go to like shoreline habitats where there's going to be cover from predators. So as for their threats, um, we mentioned a lot of migration and that's one of their habits that's most under threat, but basically the crux of most of their, the present threats really to endangered wildlife is habitat loss and degradation among others, but for gharials especially, we have the compounding threat of their habitat being highly aquatic. So in that area, there there's really a perfect storm of threats um, that are inhibiting the recovery of gharials in Nepal, India, and Bangladesh. So one of them, of course, is dams and barrages. They obviously restrict free movement. They will restrict the migrations to breeding areas and they restrict access to habitat um, just simply saying and of course they also restrict prey availability because if they're restricting free movement for the gharials they're also restricting free movement for the fish that they prey on and need so badly so on top of that and i will i'll be saying more about dams and barrages later but on top of that of course is pollution which you find everywhere but especially in this area there's uh a high amount of pollution. There are um, many disposal sites along the rivers for domestic sewage and industrial waste. And of course, there's also just the incidental runoff that comes from all that. 
also pesticides and chemical fertilizers and agriculture runs off into the water. That's a big problem. And also any other unregulated chemicals in the soil run off into the water. And it's also the soil is important too along those banks. So that kind of pollution is really harmful for the gharials and their nests. On top of dams and pollution, of course, you have human encroachment. And human encroachment, it de- it further deteriorates habitat, especially for basking and nesting, because there's a lot of camping out on these sandy banks for other fishing activities, some legal, some not legal. Mining for sand and gravel, which is a huge industry in that area. And they, they'll just camp out and mine and really uh, deplete the habitat. So that kind of human encroachment, it can be really temporary or it can be for months and months. And, you know, there's just no recovering from that kind of thing. And we talked about interfering with prey. There's also a large amount of prey depletion in these rivers. So there's a high amount of use of gill nets and that catches a lot of prey, but also gharials get caught in them. So not only are they over-harvesting the fish, but there's a lot of incidental catch and a lot of gharials are dying. And with these kind of population numbers, that's really unfortunate because it could really make a big difference. They also use poison, explosives, and electrocution to catch fish in those rivers. And that's obviously, um, it goes without saying how disruptive that is and also how dangerous it is for the for all wildlife in the rivers, but especially for the gharials. There's also the issue with law and a lot of conservation efforts and, and actually all three of these nations that we're specifically talking about, Nepal, India, and Bangladesh, they've increased or rather they've attempted to strengthen laws to protect the gharials and also their habitat, but compliance is not consistent. And this seems to be a common theme when we're talking about wildlife conservation is the consistency and compliance. So that's definitely an issue too, because you can create laws, but if they're not complied with and there's no consistency in uh, enforcement, it's almost as if the laws don't even exist. And of course, like all crocodilians, hide hunting is a big issue as well. It's currently unlawful, but as I said, compliance is an issue. It was uncontrolled in the past for a very long time, and that's a self-explanatory problem um, because, of course, that's that's one of the main causes of over-harvesting for crocodilians. So there we have sort of a confluence, a perfect storm of threats that are common, actually, for most endangered species. Now, as for this particular area... Water conflict is uh, pretty severe in this entire area, um, even including China. But um, for this particular discussion, uh, there's no known uh, population of gharials in China. But anyway, so <laughs> one of the uh, modern threats that are facing them right now is something called the Interlinking of Rivers Project, the ILR, ILR project. This is a highly controversial project politically and socially for India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. But it's an Indian plan created by the Prime Minister of India to connect several large rivers in the Himalayas via 30 mega canals and 3,000 dams, which just sounds insane. I should say dams and barrages, even though there's a little difference between them for aerial purposes, but barrages have gates and dams don't. But anyway, so... The plan is to build 3,000 dams. It would link 14 rivers 
in northern India, 16 rivers in western, central, and southern India. And when finished, it, the plan is that this entire system will be 12,500 kilometers long, which is twice the length of the Nile, which is the longest river in, in the world. So that's, ins- that's an insane amount of, <laughs> insane amount of habitat for gharials, for any aquatic species in that area. This plan, the purpose of this plan, is to divert water from flood-prone areas in India to those that are vulnerable to drought. And there are are lots of issues with this plan. We could take a whole episode talking about um, the issues with this plan and adaptive management and looking forward to the future with water conflict and climate change, but it's basically a very um, uh, nationalistic plan that will benefit India mostly. It's also meant to create hydropower and, you know, alternative power is always good, but this is not, this is not a good plan. Just (laughs) so it's not, the the benefits do not outweigh the risks, especially to the gharials, but also just to all that habitat. Um, So that's one of the major threats right now. And I wanted to especially describe that one because it's basically the perfect representation of water conflict in that area and how jealous each of these nations are of their water, whether at the community level or the national and political level. Um, So that's, you know, obviously it goes without saying that this kind of conflict is going to be a major issue going forward, has been a major issue for gharials. Yeah, that's that. Uh, gosh, yeah, you're right. We could talk so long about that project. Yeah. It's so disturbing. And, like, <laughs> and ironically, you know, here in the United States, we're realizing, like, how bad these dams are. So we're starting to take out dams while other yeah. countries are, like, just discovering, let's put in dams because hydropower, hydropower, hydropower. And also, like, just large human populations in environments that can't sustain large human populations which is also an issue here in the United States, like in the Southwest. Yeah, um, and, I, and I do want to say a little disclaimer um, in all earnestness that I'm not, you know, neither of us is an expert on, you know, the socioeconomics of India, <laughs> let alone that, <laughs> <laughs> that area. Um, but so, of course, you know, there, there could be parts of this plan that would indeed benefit certain communities. But and so, like, as always, you know, this this entire podcast is about the wildlife human interface. And that's where the conflicts occur. So, of course, the human aspects of a plan like this are important, but not at the cost of everything else, which seems to be the plan at the moment. Yeah, and I, I'm just going to bring this up because I, I swear I talked about it in a previous episode and it's it's relevant, even though this isn't in um, gharial habitat, but India recently proposed this huge um, hydropower dam that I guarantee is part of this project. And, you know, a lot of the local communities are against it because it's going to flood areas that they use. And so, you know, just because it's benefiting people in some area, it's having a negative effect on people in another area. And that's a major issue. And I think, I mean, man, just going back to (laughs) our last episode on land ethics, this is what we should have done that episode like from the start, (laughs) because I feel like so many issues that we've talked about in this podcast, it goes back to that, you know, Mm -hmm. 
and I just, I won't say too much more, but it's just, you know, de- destroying all of this habitat for, you know, lar- you know, economic growth when we're talking about hydropower because, you know, how did we live for thousands of years without power? Oh my gosh. Um, it's just, it's, tra- it's tragic that this is how we, we treat the land community. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so, so we keep talking about how endangered gharials are, but we haven't like told you how endangered they are. Yeah. Um, cause the situation's pretty dire. So, you know, it's been inferred based on the limited historic data that's available that in the past there were more than 20,000 adult gharials in their historic range, which doesn't seem like a lot, but they've estimated that the population has declined by at least a minimum of 94%, which means that the current highly conservative population estimate is like 650 um, with a range of anywhere as few as 300 to maybe as many as 900. And so, you know, because of the limited historic data, you know, this estimate of 20,000 in the past, you know, may not be accurate, but let's even say that in 1943, when like the population really started to decline and after which the majority of the data exists, Let's say there was a minimum of 5,000 in 1943. That still means a decline of 80% since 1943. Hence why the gharial is considered critically endangered. Um, In addition to its tiny, tiny range and disjunct subpopulations. So, you know, we're talking about a maximum of 900 of these things in the wild. And, you know, it wasn't actually until 2007 that the gharial was uplisted on the IUCN red list of critically endangered. Um, previously, it was just considered endangered since the initiation of the red list. But in 2007, they uplisted it to critically endangered. And the majority of the entire wild global population exists within one subpopulation. So the National Chambal Sanctuary in northern India includes about 625 kilometers of river and approximately 500 adults are found in that one sub subpopulation, which is 77% of the entire wild population. So it's, you know, never good to have all of your eggs in one basket. We know um, when we're talking about endangered metapopulations, um, but also this single subpopulation produces 86% of the global nests annually. So not only are most of the you know, existing animals found here, but almost all of the reproduction is occurring here. So that's sort of leading to this trajectory where the other subpopulations are probably going to become extirpated. Um, five of the much smaller subpopulations have high levels of human disturbance. And you know those five subpopulations include the other 14% of the, the breeding that's going on annually. So, you know, these five smaller subpopulations that have extremely high levels of human disturbance relative to the other subpopulations have all this breeding pop, have all the remainder of the breeding going on, but they have this huge level of threat, which is, you know, a not a good combination for recovery. 
And then the other eight subpopulations, you know, have almost negligible amounts of adults, um, less than 10% of the global population, which is less than 50 adults, and none of them have any known recorded recent breeding. Uh, so basically, then in the next decade, the gharials probably going to become extirpated in these eight of these um, minor subpopulations. And we've we've mentioned this before, but one of the major issues with these these sort of distinct subpopulations that don't connect and can't uh, disperse to each other is genetic drift, um, which is pretty complicated, but but to put it simply, it's the loss of genetic diversity in a population, specifically a small population is the main concern. And so when, when you're losing certain genes or certain adaptations and um, you're losing that diversity, it the species is more likely to die off quickly, more likely, they're more likely to be uh, genetic deformities um, and, and things like that. So not only is it a numbers game, but it's also um, a genetic game as well. So it's, it's very important to keep genetic diversity in small populations. And when you have those small populations, and I, I agree with Jonah that the, those other minor ones will likely be, be extirpated. So you can't just have all your genes, like Jonah said, you can't have all your eggs in one basket. You can't just have all those genes and all that potential drift happening in one sanctuary. And because, you know, you have these threats like pollution, poor gen- individuals that have like poor genetic quality are less able to fight. You know, they're more likely to die from things like pollution and, and other health related issues you know yep exactly and it it should be mentioned one of the threats i actually didn't i actually failed to mention earlier is poaching which is you know always a concern and poachers just like you know these i mean they're trophy poachers they will go after the the healthiest and the largest and the most you know robust animals in the population so when you lose that that's you know that's a further threat as well so poaching is a main issue here as well so gosh it's just a perfect storm of of pressures um against this amazing animal um so okay so that being said uh let's get a little bit positive because there are recovery measures in place which actually have improved uh, lately um so as Jonah already mentioned, they are critically endangered, according to the IUCN. And with CITES, it's the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. It's an international agreement. But uh, under CITES, the gharial is listed in Appendix 1. That's the most strict appendix out of three, and it per- prohibits the international any international trade in this species except when the purpose of import is not commercial so for example for scientific research um, some species have a lot of like a lot of room for exception but with appendix one there tends to be very little room for exception in that in that prohibition so so that's good so I'm gonna go through the three nations Nepal India and Bangladesh to talk about the specific, recovery measures that, that they're, they've established. So starting with Nepal, first I want to talk about is the National Parks and Wildlife Conservation Act, which covers a wide variety of wildlife and habitat. Um, the gharial is protected under this act, and that protection affords research on the species, on its prey and its habitat, basically all of its ecology, its relationship with its environment. It also affords 
the protections against anthropogenic pressures, so the reduction of anthropogenic pressures. We were talking about mining and fishing and all that encroachment, also pollution, etc. Of course, this this act isn't all powerful, but it it does provide that as well. And also maintaining XC2 head starting programs. For so by XC2 we mean out of the wild. So um, in sometimes in captivity, sometimes laboratory, but anyway, just not in in the wild. And a head starting program basically involves um, hatching and rearing the gharials, and then you know with the with the purpose of reintroducing them into the wild, with releasing them into the wild. So that's a head starting program. That's a huge. Um, element in all of the recovery efforts for gharials. As we mentioned, genetic drift is a problem. So that's that's also meant to address that as well. So also in Nepal, they have the Gharial Conservation Alliance. And this is actually an international agreement. India is a cooperating uh, state as well. And they work together through the GCA, the Gharial Conservation Alliance, to do basically the, more research, um, surveys, things like that. I believe it's found or I believe it's funded by the World Bank, which means it's, you know, basically funded uh, for an indeterminate time. Um, There's plenty of funding. So that's that's one of the major one of the major programs they have um, for recovery. There's a national park in Nepal called the Chitwan National Park. And this is where most of the efforts in Nepal are occurring. This is where most of the breeding and Head Start programs are centered around and since 1981, they've reintroduced over 1,200 individual gharials into this park. Unfortunately, the reintroduction program hasn't been particularly effective or successful. By 2016, now remember the program started in 1981. By 2016, the population of gharials numbered only 198 um, in that park. Um, and that was, you know, as we've been saying, those are kind of estimates. So it's really difficult to say if that's an accurate number or not. And I couldn't find whether that was whether they believed that was conservative or or generous number, but that's the number that they they came up with in 2016. When when you were researching this, did they did they talk about you know so issues with head starting a species like this? Because we talked about how when they hatch, they join these creches, and there's adults that protect them. Well, when you head start, you know, you release these young um, individuals into the wild, you know, one, do they do they congregate in creches? And, you know, if there's there's not that instinct of the adults to stay and protect them from predators, which is probably why, you know, all those individuals that have been head started have not made it. Yeah, that's actually a good question. And I don't know exactly their their methods. We could probably find that actually because they've they've been pretty public about um, the head starting program. It's been just really celebrated. But you're right; there has to be, you know, the methodology has to be very sensitive to um, their their life history. So, you know, maybe that's that's why it's it's failed. Maybe not, but that's a good question um, to ask. It is very specific. That that kind of ecology is very specific. And you're right. Head starting programs, yeah, they're they're. I wouldn't say they're controversial. They're just they they have mixed results. I'd say. So within the Chitwan National Park, on the border of Nepal and India, is um, a highly contested river called the Pandai River. And this is actually an important river for the efforts in the Chitwan National Park. 
as it is on the border of Nepal and India, we've already referred to the water conflicts in that area. There are villages on both sides of that river that compete for the water, especially during the dry season. The two countries, Nepal and India, they're not particularly friendly on this issue. They do attempt to cooperate, and I can't say enough, I can't say more about the the political situation there. But the, I wouldn't call it particularly friendly or generous. And India has a clear power advantage um, when it comes to the rivers, when it comes to water use. So it's it's very difficult for um, the villages on on the Nepal side, and these are and they're mostly villages, which depend, they're water-dependent villages. And this is another example of what I would call worsening water conflict. Um, you'd expect such things to improve with time, but it's actually worsening. And a lot of that is, of course, climate change. And, you know, it. I think it goes without saying, but I should also just, you know, not neglect to say that climate change is a major threat for gharials as well, um, especially its effect on water availability and water quality. So this kind of conflict this sort of worsening water conflict between these nations, it's the kind of conflict that will not leave room for wildlife considerations as it escalates. At some point, it's going to escalate so badly that wildlife is not even going to be, you know, considered. It's not even going to be on the table because the the political and social political aspects of the conflict are going to be more important for these governments. So Nepal is a member state to the Convention of Wetlands. Let me just say right now, there's a lot of banging going on next door. And <laughs> <laughs> I just want to apologize to my listeners. Um, this banging could go on all day, so we had to just go ahead and record. But my neighbor, I live in a duplex, and my neighbor is doing construction. I'm pretty sure he's just knocking the entire house down. So if you hear any banging, please excuse it. Um, it's you know It shouldn't be in the next episode, I hope. But I just wanted to say that as a little aside as I continue. So as a member of the Convention of Wetlands, uh, it's a, it's an international treaty. It's you know there are member states in the Mediterranean, Asia, Africa, South America, and this this agreement, like most conventions, depends on member states to create their own laws and acts. And in Nepal, they have the Aquatic Animal Protection Act, and the gharial obviously is protected, uh, afforded protections under this act. And specifically, the Aquatic Animal Protection Act works a lot to prohibit the use of poison. Um, toxic or explosive materials. And we've already mentioned that a lot of those are used for fishing and fishing. And of course, there's runoff, industrial runoff, all those kind of things. So this Animal Protection Act works to address those problems. So that offers some protection for the gharials um, in Nepal. And there's also, this act also, or rather this convention, this agreement also created the Smart Rivers Rangers Program, which is a computer which is a community conservancy program, which I've spoken a lot about how much I love those community conservancy programs. And so it creates income. It's an income generating program for communities that are river dependent, especially in that area um, where gharials are um, endangered, critically endangered. So in creating these income, in creating these local economies, it's basically, uh, oh my gosh, creating these local economies um, revolves around the premise that these communities can, in fact, generate income by protecting the rivers. Okay. <laughs> okay, so so those are the, the major, the biggest 
um, programs in Nepal that affect the gharial conservation either directly or indirectly. Moving on to India, they also have several programs. One of the biggest ones is actually just called Project Crocodile, um, which is a, a bit of a vague title, but um, they focus on head starting programs. And this was established in the mid-1970s. It was initially successful, but as we've said already, Head Start programs are, you know, um, are not consistently successful. So, and, and it's been ineffective for, for decades, in fact. Um, where it was initially successful, it has not been anymore. They mostly attribute that to a lack of habitat management and community outreach. I, I think we've said before that, you know, sometimes wildlife conservation globally um, protecting species sometimes does not include the very necessary habitat management and protection that should go with it. You can't just focus on the species um, without considering all of its ecology and habitats. It's just as important. So that's why that, that program hasn't been as successful. There's a wildlife sanctuary in India called the Katarniagat. Apologies if that's mispronouncing it, but the Katarniagat Wildlife Sanctuary is a big focus area for breeding and head starting. But what's really important there is they do a lot of research on gharials and habitat. So that's been a little bit more successful, that wildlife sanctuary. And they also do a lot of community outreach and conservancy in that wildlife sanctuary as well. Jonah mentioned the Chambal River Sanctuary and how important that is for the gharials, where you find mo most of the gharial population globally. They have the same kind of conservation efforts going on there. Poaching has been a problem in the Chambal River Sanctuary. So that's definitely something they need to, to get under control better. But as we've mentioned, thousands of re released individuals, there have been thousands of released individuals, but no significant growth in the population. So, you know, that's basically the revolving theme around gharials is, you know, big releases, no significant growth, unfortunately. So at the moment, India is really focused on the Chambal River Sanctuary, really focused on failures from the past, and they're doing more habitat and community outreach. Um, they, they're still obviously doing the Head Start programs, and it would be really interesting to look further into that and see if they've improved methods or what's going on there. <laughs> I am so sorry about the banging. I really hope that's not... <laughs> I really hope that's not too loud. Um, speaking of, actually, that all that banging has has um, scared the deer away, um, which might not be too bad because they've been eating a tree that I planted recently. They've been like, I mean, they've decimated that tree. Anyway, so you know, noise population is noise pollution is bad for wildlife people. <laughs> yes. So moving on to the final nation, Bangladesh, this is where, I mean, we've been basically going from, from highest to lowest conservation efforts. Bangladesh has um, the fewest amount of, of conservation efforts. And of course, that could also be because the population in Bangladesh is not like officially confirmed. There's not really an official confirmation that there's a breeding population in the country. Um, and there were no official conservation programs that I could find before the 2000s. Um, in Bangladesh, they have a program called Strengthening Regional Cooperation for Wildlife Protection Project. So SRC WPP. The, the initialism is just as long. <laughs> it's just as long as the title. Um, but it, 
It's um, it's a cooperative project. It's a cooperation project, and they've been they've been pretty successful. They do research on populations, habitat, and as well as occupancy. So, with the occupancy research, they have identified hot spots, and it's led to what is known as the Garial Conservation and Management Action Plan. This was established around 2016, and it mainly focused on zoo run. Head Start and Exchange programs. So we've talked about the Head Start uh, exhaustively, I think, by now. But the exchange program is, you know, it's really important. A lot of, actually, most zoos, most um, accredited and legitimate zoos do these exchange programs where they will raise the species and then they will exchange among, uh, they'll exchange between each other um, individuals in order to increase the genetic diversity in their captive populations. This particular program in Bangladesh seeks to increase that genetic diversity and seeks to eventually release these, these captive animals. Um, and so it's an NC2 and XC2 cooperative, conservation cooperative, NC2 meaning in the wild, XC2 meaning out of the wild. And the Biggest hotspots in Bangladesh right now are in the Padma and Jamuna rivers. And so they've been focusing really intensely on these hotspots that they have identified through occupancy research and reintroducing these animals to those areas. And it is basically reintroduction because there there was no confirmed population there. So whether or not there actually have been gharials surviving or persisting in those rivers is kind of hard to say, but Hopefully, this program will will see success going into the future. Um, we'll see better success. Hopefully, all these programs will see better success going into the future, because the recovery measures so far have just been so disheartening, and yeah. And the hope is that really the the biggest hope is that these these programs are going to be successful more immediately really because that the sooner they can the sooner they can be effective the sooner they can find the perfect or or at least close to perfect methods to to create an actual growth in the population the better because they're kind of running out of time i hate to say that but they are there're just so few of them and the conflicts are just increasing in the area so fingers crossed for the gharial definitely as we said in the beginning Look up pictures of the gharial videos. They're amazing animals, and I really hope that um, it's not the last we'll see of them. Yeah, and we should also say, um, I don't think you mentioned it, that you know you said that um, Bangladesh has this management action plan. Yeah. And Nepal also has a gharial recovery plan. But I never came across one for India. No, not a specific one. You're right. Yeah, so, so Nepal's is, is very specific, um, and it has... Uh, a very specific gharial plan, but India, I, ha- I didn't find a specific one either, like a direct actual gharial um, conservation act or plan. But um, yeah, um, yeah, I think it's. I think these kind of action, like the kind of action plans or recovery plans, are are helpful, like if they're made, um, you know, like these. Uh, what am I trying to say? Like these comprehensive action plans that are, you know, put together by all the stakeholders and by the government because it really, I mean, that's exactly what it's called. It creates a plan so that you can follow these steps in order to meet certain 
objectives and certain goals. And if India doesn't have one, which I, you know, like we said, we didn't come across one, I think it would really behoove them to create one because then it makes um, this recovery process a little more, you know, not that it necessarily guarantees success, but it makes it more organized. And so you can specifically aim towards certain recovery goals and objectives rather than just like, we want to recover the Garial. Because I never came across anything that said like, by this year, we want to get the population to this much. And so it's sort of just like this, um, just doing all these different things, which, you know, like you said, you're running out of time. So it makes sense to just be doing all these things. But when you create a management plan or an action plan, it can be a little more organized so that funding is being used as efficiently as possible and that the the outcome is going to be the best outcome because you're um, following these specific like directives sort of. Yeah. I think I, I think I skipped over. I can't remember if I mentioned the world wildlife fund India, they have um, a gharial species recovery program. So we, we're at least we've at least gone that far, and it's it's another reintroduction project in another wildlife sanctuary called the Hastinapur Wildlife Sanctuary. It was established in two thousand seven, um, so we at least have that, um, which I think I failed to mention. But um, yeah, it's all about the plans and and making sure that the plans are robust and adaptive as well. Yeah, man, these yeah, I just these things these animals are so amazing and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always like you know it it seems like this in the way we're talking about it, it seems like this situation is very specific to agarial but there's so many endangered species out there that you know are existing under similar circumstances where huge population declines um, extreme range fragmentation and contraction you know where all of the population is in one area almost and you know, it's just a, it's a dangerous situation because especially when there's this many threats working against them, it's almost like the odds of recovery are, are against the Garial in this, in this case, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, so as usual, if you have any questions or comments, um, definitely get in touch with us. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles, our email is conservationchronicles at gmail.com. You can also listen to other episodes at conservationchronicles.podbean.com. Um, and yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear with you if you have, you know, something to say about the Garial situation. Because um, I know we have listeners in India, and I think we've had listeners in Nepal as well. Cool. Um but if you, you know, want to add anything that we may have missed, because, you know, if it's not clear, there's so much going on with the Garial, so it's, you know, it's hard to cover every single detail. So, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>